Your Bibles, if you would, please, and open to 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you find the book of 1 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians and then find the large number 4, that is the chapter marking, and I will be reading that chapter for us. We have prayed and asked the Lord to meet with us, and one of the ways he promises to meet with us is through his word, the Bible that you hold in your own hands. God has spoken. (laughs) And we trust that now God speaks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is what Holy Scripture says. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed, that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands. As we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the year 1682, an English nobleman by the name of William Penn immigrated to North America from England, and under his authority, he established the city of Philadelphia, which is now known, um, which is now in the state known as Pennsylvania. And there was a reason why he chose that name. I'm sure many of you have heard this before, but Philadelphia is known as the city 
of brotherly love. The the word Philadelphia is actually a combination of two Greek words. You have the first phileo, which means love, and adelphos, which means brother. And then when you put those two words together, what you get is Philadelphias. William Penn founded the city of Philadelphia with a vision that this would be a place where all kinds of people from different backgrounds could come together in true unity and love. This was supposed to be a place where people could live in harmony despite their differences and embrace one another. And so you have to say this was a beautiful vision, but one that did not endure. Do you know that last year alone, there were 499 confirmed homicides in the city of Philadelphia? That that is the highest number of homicides ever recorded in a year in that city. And if you take a step back and look at the last several years, the homicide rate has only gone up and up and up. And so based on the murder rates alone, William Penn ultimately failed to establish an enduring city of brotherly love. But the good news is where Penn failed, there was another who succeeded. Years before William Penn, there was the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world and under his authority established the church. And the church is the true eternal city of brotherly and sisterly love where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue come together and love one another with the love of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses next in his letter to the Thessalonians. Look with me again at verse 9. Paul now begins a new topic, and he says, Now concerning brotherly love. If I read this passage to you in the original Greek language, even if you didn't know Greek, I'm betting you would probably be able to recognize what he's saying here, what the word means. It says, Now concerning Philadelphias. Brotherly and sisterly love is the main focus of this passage today. Now, in a season where there is so much animosity and hostility, tribalism and division, clamor and disruption, are we, Grace Fellowship Church, going to be known as a church of brotherly and sisterly love? Because this is what the church is meant to be. Jesus Christ himself said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church of Jesus Christ is to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And and the way we love one another is to be a light that shines brightly to the outside before others so that all may see this love and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And so, to that end, for that very God-glorifying purpose, here is what the Bible calls you to do. Point number one, let your love mature for your fellow believers. Verse nine, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Philadelphias, or brotherly love, most literally describes the faithful, loyal, and committed love that blood siblings would share. 
In other words, this is a familial love, one that is meant to be stronger and greater than a love amongst friends. And and out of all the words that Paul could have used for love, he chooses intentionally to use this word here because he wants to show the readers that the love between Christians ought to be the same kind of love that blood siblings have for one another. As believers, we are to love one another like family because we are a family. We're a spiritual family. The Christian sitting beside you on your right and on your left is your brother and sister in the faith. Yes, we may come from different physical families. Yes, we may come from different backgrounds and different nationalities. But in Christ, we all have the same Heavenly Father. And Jesus Christ is our perfect elder brother. So concerning this kind of familial, brotherly, and sisterly love, Paul says that there is no need for anyone to write to the Thessalonians regarding this. Why? Look again at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You've been taught by God. Look, if you learned something like physics from Albert Einstein, then you probably don't have a need for for me or anyone else to teach you about physics because you learn from the greatest teacher in that field. And in the same way, the God of love has taught the Thessalonians to love one another. They don't need anyone else, not even an apostle of Christ, to teach them about love because they were taught by the greatest teacher in the universe. Now, we're not told exactly how the Thessalonians were taught by God. I'm not inclined to think that this was some kind of thunderous, supernatural voice from the sky. But I think they were most likely taught by God through the gospel itself. And here's why. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle John says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. We know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. That right there is the gospel. And, and, and early, earlier on in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the gospel came to the Thessalonians in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In love, Jesus Christ sacrificially gave up his life to die on the cross and pay the debt of our sin. So in the gospel, they learned something of the true meaning of sacrifice. And they learn something of the true nature of unconditional love. Which really begs the question, friends, do you know what true love is? Have you experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus? If you haven't, then all you need to do is look to the cross of Jesus Christ and believe that on that cross, he died for your sins and rose again. Hundreds of years ago, St. Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, said that the cross was the pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. That was the greatest sermon on love. And if you turn away from your sins, and if you believe in this good news of divine love, then you will be forgiven of all your sins. You will be saved, and you will know what true love is. That's what happened to the Thessalonians. 
They accepted the gospel and faith, and because of it, they knew, they actually knew what love was. And, and this wasn't just theoretical, it was evidential. Paul was certain that they were taught by God because there was the evidence of love that was clearly seen in their lives. We see this in verse 10. It says, For that indeed, love indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. What's so encouraging to see here is that the love that the Thessalonians had overflowed beyond the borders of just their own church. Their their love went out to all the brothers, all the Christians throughout the region of Macedonia, which they were just a small part of. And we see here that their love wasn't just a mere emotion or feeling. It, It wasn't something they just talked about or said to one another. Their love was active. Their love was something that was, that was tangible and observable. Now, again, Paul doesn't exactly say what form their love took. In, in this small passage, he leaves out a lot of details. But based on other biblical examples, we see that Christians loved other Christians who are far away by praying for them, by financially supporting them, and by showing hospitality when the opportunity arose. The the fact is, it's impossible to love people who are far away the exact same way we're able to love people who are close to us. You just can't do it. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to love people who are far away. No matter where you are in the world, we can always be praying for other Christians in different places. And that's why here at Grace Fellowship Church, we make it a point every Sunday evening in our prayer meeting to pray for a different church and to pray for Christians in a different country, because that's one of the ways that we can love Christians outside of our own local context. Sending financial support is another way to love people from afar. If we look at Philippians 4, we see that the church in Philippi sent money to the Apostle Paul in order to help him on his missionary journey. That was an act of loving kindness. In Acts chapter 11, we see that the church in Antioch sent financial relief to all the saints in Judea because of the great famine that struck them. That was an act of loving kindness. And that's the reason why we as a church send money to our missionaries who are living and faithfully serving in places like Mozambique and India and Scotland. Hospitality, specifically being able to welcome people into your home in order to give them a place to rest, eat, fellowship, and sleep, is another way to love people who are traveling from afar. You know, as I was thinking about hospitality, I was reminded of the weekender that we hosted years ago when 25 pastors from across the country came and joined our church for a weekend to learn from us. And during that weekend, we asked you, the church, to help in the area of hospitality, and so many of you graciously opened up your homes and lovingly served the brothers from all across the country. And so when I think about all of this, when I think about all the praying, the giving, and the showing hospitality that you have done, that brings me to say how thankful to God I am for you, for the love that you have for one another and for other Christians in our city, in our country, and in our world. Grace Fellowship Church, you know what love is 
Because you were taught by God. And the evidence of that love is seen so clearly in your life. And so instead of trying to teach you more about the basics of Christian love, let me just give you this one simple exhortation. Brothers and sisters, keep growing in your love for one another. Let your love mature for your fellow believers Keep increasing and abounding in Philadelphia. That's where he goes in verse 10 in the second sentence. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. More and more. Paul loves to use this word again and again in 1 Thessalonians. You're, you're, you're doing well, Thessalonians, but keep going. You're loving well, but do this more and more. Now, there's an important implication bound up in these words. It implies that none of us is perfect in our love. No matter where you are in your life, no matter how loving you are, there is always room to grow both in the quantity and in the quality of your love. And how exactly that looks will be different from person to person based on your giftings, talents, abilities, and resources. But whatever love looks like for you, don't ever become content with the level of love. We are to love one another more and more and more and more until Christ comes. Let me just say one more thing about maturing in love. As you're seeking to grow in love, as you're seeking to pursue excellence in love, don't neglect to pray for this. Earlier in chapter 3, you can look there, Paul said something very similar to what he's saying here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul prayed, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. In chapter 3, Paul prays that the Lord would help Christians to grow in love. In chapter 4, Paul actively calls on Christians to grow in love. Now, when you put these two together, you can see that prayer and action go hand in hand in a Christian's life. You cannot separate the two. You you can't just simply pray and then passively wait for love to somehow abound in your life. Nor can you just force love to grow in your own strength without prayerful dependence on the Lord. You know, one of the things that I personally try to do on my commute home every day is specifically pray that the Lord would help me to love my family well. It's a two-minute drive, so I don't have a lot of time to pray, but that's what I pray. Lord, help me to love my family well. And I have found that when I neglect that prayer, when I just forget to pray or when I'm feeling too tired to pray, I am more prone to disappoint my family. I'm so much more prone to be selfish and care only for myself. I'm so much more prone to think about myself more than I do my wife. I'm so much more prone to provoke my children to anger. But those days when I look to the Lord and I pray for a greater love for my family, I mean this when I literally say it, the Lord has always, every single time, answered that prayer. And why wouldn't he? That's exactly what he desires for us. He wants us to grow in our love for one another. And so, brothers and sisters, pray this for yourself and then pray this for one another so that we would all increase and abound in love. And then go and love 
the best way you know how. Now, when we think about love, we usually tend to think about it in terms of how we directly relate to others, as if it's this outward thing. And, and that's true, right? Where we're usually asking, how does love work from me to you? What can I say to you to show you that I love you? What can I do for you to show you that I love you? But we need to understand that's not the only way to show our love for others. That is a very direct way, but there is also an indirect way. We ought to also ask the question, what can I do for me in order to show you that I love you? Now, I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's where the Apostle Paul goes next in the second half of this passage. Here's point number two. Live an honorable life as an act of love for others. You need to rightly care for yourself and guard how you live in this world, not as an act of selfishness and pride, but as a way of loving others. Friends, one of the things that we need to recognize is that we are living in a very noisy day and age today. There is a lot of disruptive clamor in the world today with a ton of loud and angry voices and opinions that stir up conflict and strife. And in such a time as this, the word of God is calling you and I to live a peaceful and honorable life. We are to live a quiet and dignified existence in this world for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christian love. Now, these next two verses, verses 11 and 12, are divided into two main parts. First, he talks about how we are to live. That's verse 11. And then in verse 12, he talks about why, the reasons why we are to live this way. And that's where we're going to see mainly the connection to love. So, dealing first with the how question, if you look at verse 11, there are three exhortations he gives that all begin with the word to. Okay, T-O. So if you like to mark up your Bibles, then you can actually circle the three main twos to see how it's broken down. Verse 11, and two, aspire to live quietly. That's one exhortation. And two, mind your own affairs. And two, work with your own hands. Three exhortations, and we're going to deal with them one by one. The first exhortation, be ambitious about living peacefully. When Paul calls on the church to aspire to something, he he is essentially calling on Christians to live with some holy ambition. That's what the word to aspire means. It means to be ambitious, to be zealous. And what is it that we're to be zealous about? We are to be ambitious and zealous about living a quiet life. He doesn't mean this literally. It's not like you got to crank the volume way down on your voice. It's not like you should never talk and, and remain silent in this world, but rather it is speaking to a kind of lifestyle that refrains from disruptive activities and prioritizes peace. That's what a quiet life means, refraining from disruptive activities and prioritizing peace. Peace is the goal. That's what we're striving for. We are to be ambitious about peace. We are to be zealous about peace. You see, the problem today is that 
some Christians get this all backwards. You have Christians who are ambitious and zealous people, which is good, but they are more ambitious about a clamorous life that leads to greater conflict. These are the ones that love to quarrel. These are the ones that love to engage in fiery debates. These are the ones that love to give vent to their frustration and anger. But this kind of noisy life contradicts what the Bible says here. Listen, we need to be the guardians of peace, not the disturbers of peace. So what does that look like when a brother or sister sins against you? Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are more spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. What does it mean to be a guardian of peace when you differ with another Christian on matters of conscience? Romans 15, 7, welcome one another. That that doesn't mean you just say hi. That means you embrace them, you welcome them, you accept them. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What does it mean to be a guardian of peace when you're living in a tumultuous time with so much confusion and chaos surrounding the government and government mandates? 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, pray. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful life and quiet life. That's what we're called to do. We're to pray for our government so that they would lead in such a way where we can live a peaceful and quiet life. Friends, be guardians of peace. Aspiring to this kind of quiet living in our lives is an act of love towards others because clamor that produces conflict often ends up hurting others. But gentleness that produces peace encourages others and builds them up. So be ambitious. If you're going to be ambitious and zealous about something, be ambitious about this living peacefully as an act of love for others in this world. Another way to strive for peace is by doing what it says next in our text, verse 11 again, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Here is the contemporary way of saying this. Just mind your own business. That's the second exhortation. Just mind your own business. And, And it means exactly what it says. We are to pay attention to the things that actually have to do with us. And the flip side of that coin is we are to refrain from meddling in the affairs of others. Now, it's important to clarify at this point that there is a big, big difference between caring for others and meddling in other people's affairs. Caring is a selfless act. There there is a genuine desire to help and meet the needs of others. But meddling is selfish. You, You decide on your own to intrude and interfere into other people's personal lives without their consent and without their consideration. It's, it's kind of like you're an uninvited and unwelcome guest to a party, but you grab a crowbar and you pry the door open anyways and force yourself in so that you can enjoy the party when you're not invited. That's what it means to be a meddler. 
And, and the Bible warns us of this kind of meddling in the affairs of others. First Peter chapter 4, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Meddlers go outside of their personal boundaries and they get fixated on, on everything else, on what others are doing. And it often leads to gossip. It often leads to offense and disruption. Friends, this is the opposite of love. Nobody likes people interfering where they're not welcome to be a part of the discussion or where they have no real knowledge of the whole given situation. And I I think that right there helps us to understand what Paul means when he says, mind your own affairs. What, what, What are the things that belong in the realm of our own affairs? Well, generally speaking, I think that they are the things that are close to us, not far from us. They're the things that we actually have credible knowledge of, not things that we don't know enough about. They're the things that directly involve us, not the things that are distant from us. They're the things that we are invited to engage in, not as unwelcome guests. For me, personally, my family, my church, my my home and my job, those are the things that are primarily my own business. These are the things that I should be most mindful of. These are the things that I need to to devote my best attention to. These are the things that I actually have influence over. And so, brothers and sisters, beware of meddling in the affairs of others, especially in this social media age. Rather, mind your own business and focus on the work in front of you. That's the third exhortation. Focus on the work in front of you. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And third, to work with your own hands, to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, if you're a homemaker or if you work in an office or you work in a job that requires more mental energy than manual labor, this doesn't mean that you should quit your job tomorrow and then go find a construction job the next day. The point here is to live a focused and diligent life with the tasks that are in front of you. And you can do that as someone who works outside the home, as someone who works inside the home, or someone who goes to school. What, what, what Paul is addressing here and what Paul is saying here is don't be lazy, don't be idle, work hard to care for yourself. This is how the Thessalonians were instructed to live by Paul and his fellow missionaries. But but not only were they taught this, they were also modeled this in the lives of the missionaries. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, if you remember this, Paul said, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. These missionaries were not idle and lazy people. They didn't take advantage of the Thessalonians by freeloading off their generosity. They put their hands to the plow and they got to work and they call on others to do the same. Friends, this is the kind of honorable life that we should all strive to live We ought to be ambitious about living peacefully. 
while minding our own business by focusing on the work in front of us. And here's the, here, here are two reasons why we are to live this kind of honorable life. Let me, let me start again in verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, verse 12, so that, here's the reason, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Paul cares about the optics of the world. The Bible addresses this in a number of different times, in a number of different ways. We need to be concerned about what our lives look like to those who are outside of the faith. And Paul actually told us why this matters earlier in the text that I read for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. It, it was for the sake of preaching the gospel. So, so you can see here that there is an evangelistic bent to this kind of quiet and dignified life. How we live and labor in this world matters for the sake of the gospel. I mean, just think about it. What will non-Christians think about Christianity if you're a lazy, idle, busybody, noisy, and meddling person? What are they going to think if, if, if that's you and you're trying to preach to them the gospel? That is not the kind of life that is going to make the gospel attractive. Yes, Yes, we proclaim the gospel with our lips, but we adorn the gospel with our lives. And living a life of peace and dignity, working hard and walking with integrity, is the kind of honorable life that people are drawn to respect. And when people respect you, realistically, they are much more likely to give you an open ear to hearing the good news of the gospel. So that's the first reason why we are to strive to live an honorable life. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's for unbelievers. And here's the second reason. It's to not unnecessarily burden others. Keyword there, unnecessarily. Here's what I mean by that. The, the goal is independence. The, the goal here is to get to a place where you don't need to borrow or solicit help from others, which is a form of love. John Stott helpfully wrote this. True, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. If you're idle and lazy and you're unwilling to work simply because you don't want to, and you take advantage of the generosity and kindness of others, then that creates a kind of unloving and unnecessary burden on the people who want to help you. Now, I want to be very, very careful here, because what I'm not saying is that you should never receive meals or gifts or financial help from people who want to serve you and help you. Just remember, the Apostle Paul embraced joyfully the gift that was given to him by the Philippians for the sake of missions. There will be times and seasons where you will need to depend on the help of others. 
like when you have a newborn in the home or when you get laid off from work or when you're experiencing a very great and overwhelming trial in your life. And in those circumstances, when you need help and help is given to you, you should humbly and gratefully receive it. Because when you don't, listen, you are actually stifling people's godly efforts to love you, which is exactly what they are commanded and called to do in the Bible. This is an act of worship on their part. So you shouldn't try to put a stop to that. Rather, you should humbly receive those gifts and be filled with gratitude. But insofar as it is possible, you should always be striving to work hard for independence so that you wouldn't unnecessarily be a burden onto others. On the contrary, work hard so that you would be a blessing to others and that you would be able to give to those who are in need. Hopefully you can see that loving others doesn't just happen when you directly care for others. It also happens when you directly care for yourself and you strive to live an honorable life. That in itself is an act of love for both the unbeliever and the believer. In this noisy and clamorous world, how we live our lives matters for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christian love. And so, my brothers and sisters, let's show the world that the true city of brotherly love is not found in the city of Philadelphia in the state of Pennsylvania, but it is found in the church, the church of Jesus Christ, where the Lord's people come together to love the Lord and love one another. Let's pray. So, Father, make this so. Help us to be what we are. We belong to a kingdom that will not be shaken. We belong to a city that will endure forever, a city that is marked by love. And so help us to live in obedience to this command. Help us to grow more and more in our love for one another and in our love for all. In Jesus' name, amen.